Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail the Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, which you are now tuned into yet another episode. We're in the 90s, y'all. Like These are our classic episodes where we have another orthopedic surgeon on, and we are uh, we are close to 100. And today we are doing this is episode number ninety three of our again of our classic episodes. We don't we do have other subsectors of types of episodes that we have, but today we are talking about some foot and ankle stuff. We are talking about lateral ankle instability, and we have Dr. Peter Mangone to come and talk to us a little bit about this. So a little bit more about Dr. Mangone. He actually attended and graduated cum laude from Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. He then did his residency at Emory and then he did a fellowship in orthopedic foot and ankle surgery at the Center for Orthopedic Care in Cincinnati, Ohio with the former AOFAS president, Dr. James Marco. Uh, He is also very active in research. He's one of the pioneers in ankle arthroscopy for lateral instability uh, and he has held many positions on many different societies. Uh, he was also the president of the Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Foundation and many other uh, many other societies. So uh, without further ado, today we're going to talk about some pertinent ankle anatomy. We're going to talk about some physical exam maneuvers. We're going to talk a lot about lateral ankle instability. Check us out on YouTube. We have the slides that go along to a lot of things that we're talking about. And uh, with further ado, let's go ahead and get into the topic for the day. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Dr. Mangone, welcome to the uh, Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we always start off with just a couple of questions, getting to know our guests a little bit more. And this is, you know, kind of a foot and ankle talk. So what brought you into the field or kind of can you kind of tell me the story of what brought you into the field of foot and ankle? So, uh, so foot and ankle, though, when I was in residency, I, I t- oftentimes talk to uh, uh, nursing staff and other people and they ask me about foot and ankle. And I say, you know, when I was a resident, it was relatively immature still. There was some innovation going on, but uh, you basically you could either uh, brace it, fuse it or cut it off. And that was kind of your options when it came to treating foot and ankle problems back in the uh, 80s and the early 90s. Uh, I was fortunate to be in a situation where there were several pioneers in the field. Ken Johnson, who <clears throat> was at Vanderbilt, passed away, unfortunately, in a, in a uh, plane accident. And then Mark Meyerson and some other people, Lamar Fleming, who was my chairman, who uh, kind of, I had some exposure to foot and ankle where I, uh, you know, there was a lot of trauma where I trained at, at Emory and Grady, but got some exposure. And then actually uh, Errol Bailey, who's still in the field, one of my mentors who's uh, in Atlanta. And so I got to learn a little bit about foot and ankle. And what I saw was that it was really a field that was ripe for innovation. It was really a field where I thought I could make a difference, where I could actually, you know, do something beyond just the paradigms that were already created. And uh, it was exciting. It's an op- it was an opportunity to do a whole host of procedures, right? You could do sports medicine, you could do trauma, you could do reconstructive, you could do you know, uh, you know, more uh, uh, bunions and and I want to say cosmetic procedures because we don't do pr- procedures for cosmesis, but the concept of you know creating a better foot, if you will. And then now we can even do total ankles, right? So we do right. total joints. So it's really a, a specialty that allows you to do a wide range of 
procedures as opposed to just doing the same procedure every day on a routine basis. So those were the things that drew it to me, combination of mentorship, the opportunity to really have an impact and what I felt, you know, I could, I could make a change in the, in the way things were done. And then thirdly, the opportunity to do multiple different types of procedures in my day-to-day life and my career, as opposed to being, let's say, pigeonholed into one type of procedure for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and those are all the reasons I've, uh, you know, those sounds like, you know, great, great reasons. And one of the things that uh, people will also say for foot and ankles that you can also find a job. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, there, there, <laughs> there is definitely a need for orthopedic foot and ankle and anybody out there is interested. Definitely. There's opportunities. There's uh, great fellowships out there. And definitely you can, for the most part, choose where you want to practice uh, in your career and uh, and life. And so it definitely, there's great opportunity there as well. But for me, a lot of it was just the passion. It was, it was kind of what I was passionate about as well. I had other passions interested in hand and other things, but, but really foot and ankle stood out when I, uh, when I had to make those decisions, that's what really stood out to me to be a field that was going to be an exciting place to be. Yeah. And, And talking about passion, I know that, you know, we were talking beforehand that you're also are very interested and involved in education along with your practice. And so we have like a lot of residents that listen to this, a lot of fellows, some attendings as well. Can you kind of just touch base on kind of like how, what that looks and how you balance it? Like, how, you know, doing a private practice as well as being heavily involved in education and in, in these different kinds of societies. Sure. Yeah. And, and some of that goes back to, uh, uh, my fellowship director, uh, Jim Samarco, he's actually retired now. His son is in practice in Cincinnati, but Jim Samarco, who was a former president of the AOFAS, was my fellowship director. And I remember when I left fellowship or as I was leaving fellowship, he sat me down and he said, you know, Pete, you have to be involved. He said, it, you, it, it's, it's critical that you be involved as you go forward, even though you're going into private practice you know, it's your obligation, if you will, to help the next set, the next generation learn. And so that was kind of a charge he left me with. So when I got out into the to the world and of private practice, um, you know, I, I got involved in the Foot and Ankle Society initially. And at the time, you know, I was not, if you will, a, an expert in anything at that point in time, other than just trying to, you know, get into private practice and do things. But what I did in what I did have an expertise in at the time was coding because coding at the time was relatively new. Uh, What I mean by that is there was a newer emphasis on it in the late nineties because of a series of things that were going on in the, in the legal world and and the medical legal world. And so, uh, so I got involved in the coding committee at the foot and ankle society. I just found, you know, where could I make an addition, right? Where could I make a difference? What could I be involved in? And so I, I started getting involved in the coding and reimbursement committee, uh, spent time uh, learning under the people that were there. And then slowly, as my expertise in certain areas evolved, I was able to then get into the fields of, of you know, ankle instability and the other areas that I've, I've done. Now, definitely, you know, private practice is busy. I don't have fellows or residents underneath me. Uh, so it, it requires, you know, my own personal time. And I just have to figure out how to do that. That, you know, that means some weekends and that means some nights. And I'm fortunate to have a, a, a family and a wife that was very accommodating for that, understood that that was part of what made me me. 
was the fact that I enjoyed teaching and uh, I always had an academic interest. Uh, I just decided that private practice at the time I came out into uh, into uh, practice, there was kind of a backlash against employed physicians at the time because of the way the 90s had gone with a lot of employed physicians. And then a lot of hospitals were letting physicians go around that time, a little bit mm-hmm. similar to now, uh, you know, with this kind of the way things are. And so I decided that it was a safer bet for me to go into private practice. I also was more interested with the coding aspect. I had some business interests as well. And definitely, I think in the private practice world, you can explore those interests a little bit more easily than you can in an academic you know, practice, which is maybe uh, a large uh, you know, institutional type practice. So, uh, you know, it just re- it requires the main thing it requires is dedication, you know, dedication and passion. And if, if you have that, you'll find the time to do those things uh, and you have to set yourself up for success. I was just talking to a group of residents um, at one of the universities recently, and that the question was asked, well, how did I do some of my work on studies and things like that? And I just set up outcomes measures early on, right? I, I, I asked questions, you know, I, I had, you know, society scores, or I had, uh, in this case with ankle instability, we took Carlson Peterson scores, and we used those, and we, you know, I collected those when patients walked in the door, and then I collected them after their surgery. And so, you know, it required me, though, to to do a lot of effort to do that, but it was right. something that was important to me for the perspective of continuing to satisfy my academic interest, right? That I, I it wasn't like I had private practice on mind and I wasn't going to abandon, I was going to abandon all things academic. It was uh, that academics just wasn't the right fit for me at that point in time, but I still wanted to be an academic individual. I still wanted to look at my results. You, you know, the old saying is that nothing ruins great outcomes like looking at your results. <laughs> right. So, uh, so it's an opportunity for me to make sure: am I doing, am I doing good? Am I, you know, are the procedures that I'm doing actually making a difference? And so, so those are the things that it requires to to do that, and it's doable, uh, definitely, you know, doable. Uh, again, I was fortunate to have a mentor in Jim Samarco who was in private practice and ran his own fellowship. So uh, he kind of taught me a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I know definitely your mentors have a lot to to do with, you know, kind of the the route that you end up taking. And I'm glad you're able to put aside the time and find a time and at least make the time to, you know, continue to do educational activities and research and whatnot. And one thing that you talked about was lateral ankle instability, which is kind of our talk for the day. So we can go ahead and transition to that. And uh, Dr. Mangon, how how often, I guess, are you seeing people in your clinic with ankle instability and in what kind of, you know, are they mostly athletes or, you know, how often are you seeing this kind of, I guess, the epidemiology you could say? Yeah, well, definitely you know, ankle sprains are one of the most common injuries, no doubt about it, right? You know, we see uh, uh, patients all the time with ankle sprains. Uh, you know, they usually are inversion ankle sprains. Uh, but you know, in many cases, when you say to the patient, what exactly happened? They're like, I have no idea. I just know that I went down, right? Uh, uh, they can sometimes tell you the exact mechanism, but we, I think what's interesting about ankle instability is that we're, we're slowly moving a little bit closer toward, uh, the other joints, uh, knees and uh, what I call the other major joints, if you will, knees and, uh, and, uh, shoulders in terms of how we're evolving to treat those, right? You know, traditionally ankle instability or ankle sprains have been, you know, completely treated with a hands-off approach, 
if you will, right? And then we, we find out that, okay, the patients who ultimately end up having problems, we end up treating. Uh, what we're seeing is as we go forward, and especially as total ankles came into play, and we've done a lot more total ankle replacements, what we're seeing is that a lot of these total ankle patients are in fact patients with, resid- with uh, kind of undiagnosed instability issues. And so trying to better understand you know, which of these patients with an ankle sprain actually turns into chronic instability and which of the patients can we treat non-operatively and actually do fine is very similar to where, for instance, uh, shoulder dislocations mm. you know, are going, right? You know, back when I was a resident, nobody ever operated on a first-time dislocator, right? right. I mean, that was like heresy. You would never do... Uh, a shoulder dislocation, you know, you would never operate on. Part of that was the techniques we had back then were all open, right? You had to make a big, large incision to do it. We didn't really have suture anchors back then in 1993, or they were just starting. You know, you had to drill holes to pass sutures, all that sort of stuff. As the techniques have improved, as arthroscopy has, you know, come on to play, and you can do these procedures through smaller incisions, faster times, better outcomes, what we see is that some patients now, the young dislocators, I think the, the rule of thumb is that if you get somebody under the age of 20 or 25 that has a, a first time dislocation with a pancart lesion, you're probably better off fixing that patient because the chances of them re-dislocating and having a problem long term is, is greater as we've studied it and understand it better. And I think yeah. that's what we're in the process of trying to figure out with ankle instability you know, we see tons of ankle sprains, right? Tons of ankle sprains. Which of those patients, this is where the research really needs to be done. Which of those patients can we identify and say, okay, yeah, you're the one that's going to have a problem. So we need to get on you early and Hey, you over here, you're fine. You know, take it easy. You'll be good in four to six weeks. And that's the part that I find incredibly interesting, not just how to do the surgery once they get to instability, but can we try to really figure out which of these patients we need to be kind of uh, getting to early, like the shoulder doctors have now figured out, you know, to try to prevent problems from occurring rather than ultimately saying, oh, sorry about that. You know, it's 25 years later and now you need an ankle replacement. Right. And, and so when we look at these injuries and like, you know, we're talking about lateral ankle instability, we talked about kind of this inversion mechanism. Uh, and then we'll touch base about kind of treatment a little bit later on, but what exactly, you know, what, what structures are we looking at? What is the relevant anatomy that we need to understand in order to kind of continue for later on and kind of discuss when we talk about treatment wise, but what are, what are the main structures that we need to, to know for, uh, for lateral ankle instability? Right. So the, the main two, the, the two structures that the two ligamentous structures that we talk about most commonly is the anterior talofibular ligament and the calcaneofibular ligament or the ATFL and the CFL. The, uh, the two joints and, and I, you know, you, you bring up the subtalar joint because I think that's important. Uh, you know, I like to use the term hind foot instability in some cases rather than ankle instil- instability because really the, the ligaments themselves, they do protect the ankle, but they also protect the, the subtalar joint. And so in many cases, these are a kind of a combination of, of instability aspects or a, a, it's a spectrum 
of instability from just the ankle itself to just anterior translation to anterior translation with rotation to valgus and you know varus valgus instability and i think one of the things that we've really had a finer appreciation for in the last 10 years we've done there's been some anatomic studies that have come out of uh, spain um, that have really looked closely and some arthro and as we've looked at the the arthroscopy of these diseases what we see is that the ATFL is really made up of two elements. You know, it's, it's kind of seen on this diagram as one, but really it's two elements. There's a superior band and an inferior band, and the superior band is intraarticular. The inferior band is extraarticular, and the inferior band actually wraps around and connects to the CFL. So what we're seeing here as two, quote, separate ligaments really functions that inferior ATFL and CFL functions kind of as a sling around that area, much like the inferior glenohumeral ligament does in the shoulder. And so it, it combined, it, it, it captures and actually works to stabilize both the ankle and the subtalar joint. And what we've also seen is that sometimes people can have isolated superior band tears or superior band laxity just by itself. And those patients may not have a lot of varus valgus instability, but they have a rotational instability, right? So as the, as the ankle goes forward and there's a forward force, there's a, a, a translation of the ankle forward and into, and into internal rotation because that ligament can't hold that as well, that superior band. But yet when you test pure anterior translation, you don't get it, you don't, you don't feel it as much because that inferior band is still intact. And so it's kind of protecting you from this inversion moment arm, but it doesn't protect you as much from the rotational moment arm. So it's, it's really what we're seeing is a, is a maturation of what we understand as instability, whereas it used to be kind of a two plane, either it's front back or side side, right? And now what we're seeing is it's really translation, rotation, and varus valgus. So it's a three-dimensional deformity that we're really dealing with an instability pattern. Um, and so we're, we're, we're just learning more about it. And, and to me, that's the key to, is to, to understand how to treat it best in the long term, right? If we don't understand the anatomy and we think the anatomy is A and it's really B, then any any treatment for, you know, pathology A may not be entirely successful because, you know, we've got a different anatomic problem going on than we think. So it's really been educational and fun to, to be part of this process of learning more about the true anatomy of the lateral side of the ankle. Right. And, and just to somewhat do a little recap, you talked about the ATFL, the anterior talofibular ligament, and it has two bands, a superior band that's more intraarticular and it also has an inferior band, which wraps around and has some connections to the CFL, the calcaneofibular ligament, and they all kind of work as, as a sling, just like you were saying, similar to the inferior glenohumeral ligament of the shoulder. Okay. And it, it's not just a uh, front, front, back, side, side, but also kind of translation and rotation uh, when you talk about kind of the ankle uh, and you and we're discussing ankle instability. Correct. And I would encourage, you know, uh, again, I harp back to my fellowship director because I learned so much from him, but his, his, you know, saying in clinic used to be the way you understand nor or the way you understand abnormal is by understanding normal, you know, a thousand, 10,000 times, whatever the case might be. So I would encourage all the residents and the fellows out there <clears throat> examine as many normal ankles as you possibly can, because once you 
you know, you learn how to do the, the anterior drawer test once you learn how to do a tilt test and then do an anterior drawer test with internal rotation versus an anterior drawer test with external rotation. And you, you, you do all that in a normal ankle, then you get somebody who has, let's say, a superior, you know, uh, ATFL tear and you find that, oh, now, you know, I, I internally rotate and I can feel this translation, whereas that doesn't exist in the normal side. And it's a subtle, it's a subtle finding, but it's much like what you, what you learn to, to learn a Lachman test or mm-hmm. to learn, uh, you know, how to feel that instability in a shoulder when you, when you're examining the shoulder, you know, and so I would encourage everybody to, to examine as many normals as you possibly can. We have a tendency to focus on the pathologic side and say, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time. You know, they came in, said their left foot hurts or the left ankle's a problem. Let me just examine the left ankle because I need to get going somewhere. I've got too many patients in clinic or whatever the case might be. Take the time when you're younger to really examine those normals as many times as you possibly can. So look to that other side uh, as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and that's actually what I wanted to get into next. Kind of when you see these patients, what kind of questions are you asking them? Or are there anything that they normally um, say to you as far as a history is concerned? And then we kind of talk about how to do some of these different uh, physical exam, manu- physical exam maneuvers, like what the drawer test is, et cetera. But so I guess to starting off, like what is the like, what does it look like when you're talking to these patients, the important things that you want to know, then afterwards, kind of what your physical exam is like? Yeah, so most of these patients, especially, the, you know, when we're talking about chronic instability patients, you know, the, you know, obviously, what type of ankle sprain did you have if they, if they can remember? Two, I always ask them about ecchymosis. You know, how much ecchymosis did they have, right? People usually remember that. That's something that they 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 sometimes remember their swelling, yet yeah, was really swollen or it was mildly swollen. That's another aspect. You can kind of get a sense as to how bad of an ankle sprain did they have, you know, that time that it occurred. Um, and then did they have a lot of ecchymosis? Was it just medial? Was it or was it just lateral or did, was it medial and lateral? And so you can get some information from that aspect. Um, you can ask them how long were they on crutches? Right. How long did they did they stay on crutches with those ankle sprains or if they've had multiple ankle sprains? How long were they? on? Oh, you know, I was on for two days and then I was back to work and everything. Well, that's probably going to be less of a concern than than an ankle sprain where somebody was, you know, said I couldn't walk on it for three to four weeks. I was on crutches and everything. Um, number of ankle sprains definitely plays a role. You know, how many have you had? Uh, and but you also have to act, ask that within the time context, right? If somebody says, oh, I sprained my, my ankle, I sprained my ankle 10 times. Well, is that 10 times over 30 years or 10 times in the last year, right? So right. getting a time reference on that. Uh, and then probably, you know, the other question I ask people, especially patients as we're, we look for these superior ATFL kind of tears is, does it feel unstable, Right. And so that's something that you can oftentimes people will will say, you know, they may have pain, they may not have pain, but they can usually say, you know, just it it feels unstable when I try to do something on it. You know, it's just kind of a, a, a sixth sense. They can usually give you some information. And then what you have to try to glean from that is uh, if they describe pain at the same time, a lot of times what I will try to get them to do is say, okay, can you, can you identify, did you have pain first and then your ankle felt unstable or gave way? 
or did you give way and then have pain? Because obviously somebody who has pain, if you've got an intraarticular lesion, uh, an osteochondral lesion, something like that, and you happen to step the wrong way and step on that, I oftentimes say it's like stepping on a tack, right? If yeah. you stepped on a piece of glass or a tack, your ankle would give way, but you don't have instability. It's really the pain that's driving that giving way type scenario. Um, sometimes you can have both, but that that usually people can give you some sense as to whether or not it it's you know it just feels unstable by itself or there's a painful stimuli uh, to that. So I think those are the the aspects. And then of course we didn't talk in the anatomy of you know perineal tendons. You have to be always aware of the perineal tendons out there. And so you want to um, ask them if they feel any snapping or any popping over in that region. Almost everybody who has an ankle sprain will say they heard a pop. Right. So when it happens, it, almost everybody has a pop and that's usually just the ligament or a part of the ligament tearing. It's not usually a perineal tendon issue. But if they have persistent snapping in that posterior lateral uh, ankle area, then some of those patients will have a perineus brevis tear and that can play a role in their their um, instability symptoms as well. Yeah. So some of the big things, obviously, you, know, you want to just check their history. How many times have they had these feelings of instability, just kind of doing a recap, uh, check their ecchymoses. Where was it on the lateral medial side? Um, you know, also check to see if they actually are feeling instability or if they're having some pain before the instability, which may clue you in towards something else maybe going on, like maybe some type of osteochondral fragment or, you know, OCD lesion, whatever else it may be. And also definitely want to check their perennials, seeing if they're having any mechanical symptoms like clicking, snapping, um, and then, you know, if they heard a pop when it happened, which you said that that's likely the ligament, but those are all things in the history. Now, when you're actually doing a physical exam and you're examining these patients, what are, what are some of the tests that are important to do and then how do you do them? Right. So the, you know, the, the most common thing, first of all, is you always want to, if you can, is get the patient up and have them stand. Right. That's without a doubt in foot and ankle. Obviously, if they've got a really severe acute injury, that's different. But we're again, we're going to kind of focus on the chronic ankle instability patient here. They come in, they've said my ankle's giving way or I'm having this chronic issue. So typically you want to get them up and you need to assess what is their anatomy of their foot. Do they have a cavus foot? Do they have a, a, a varus heel? So those are some, some basic things that you have to look at that really you can't do from a, a sitting position, right? So, so number one, stand the patient up and, and look at them, look at them from the front, look at them from the back, um, have them walk and see if you can identify any obvious anatomical uh, malalignment issues that could be contributing to a instability picture. Um, and then you move on to your basic palpation. You want to palpate where the ATFL is, where the CFL is, see if they have any tenderness there, the ankle itself, uh, the perineal tendons. Um, and then, you know, once you are through that, then you get to your next, you know, your, your instability provocation tests, which are really the anterior drawer uh, and, uh, and the uh, um, and that, again, that interior drawer, I do both in external rotation and internal rotation to kind of test the, the different bands of the ATFL. 
Uh, and that's with the ankle, the AT, as you indicate, the ATFL, you want to test more in a, a, in a dorsiflexion, uh, you know, kind of with the ankle and neutral, I call it neutral, which is at 90 degree kind of angle. Um, the CFL, CFL does um, contributes a little bit of, uh, of, of um, restraint to the inter drawer, but most of it is ATFL driven uh, for the most part. Uh, and, uh, and so that anterior lateral, uh, anterior drawer tests, those are really the, the main tests. And basically, as this uh, diagram indicates, you want to grab the, the uh, supramalleolar area, and then you want to cup that heel and kind of, you know, while holding the tibia straight, you want to kind of pull the ankle forward. So uh, again, similar to a, if you think about a Lachman test in the knee where you're going to stabilize the femur and pull forward with the, uh, with the tibia, the proximal tibia, you want to be pulling the calcaneus and the, and the ankle kind of forward. And again, examine the normals because that's when you'll be able to, to kind of better identify what abnormal is. And I think, you know, tailor tilt, again, I do with the ankle in a, in a, you want to do, you want to do tailor tilt with the ankle in neutral, just like dorsiflexion. Um, that really gives you the, the, you know, when, when you put it in plantar flexion, there's a certain amount of normal laxity that occurs in the ankle when you plantar flex the, uh, the talus. And so you want to have that ankle and the talus kind of locked into the mortise when you do your tailor tilt test. And so you'll, you'll do the tailor tilt where you take and again, stabilize the, the tibia, and then you want to invert the heel. And again, it, it's, it's, there's a, it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum because you get a little motion through the subtalar joint that's normal, Right. There is some normal varus valgus through the subtalar joint that can occur. So you have to get a kind of a feel for what is, you know, what is normal, what is abnormal. And I think the other thing to, to talk about is just the fact that laxity is different than instability, right? Yeah. So, so understanding that, you know, every patient and, and, and especially a lot of athletes have, you know, a little bit of laxity as part of their exam, trying to examine that other side and find out what their baseline is is important in terms of identifying pathology. That's awesome. So, you know, obviously just to do a little recap again, yeah. have them, you know, have them standing. You want to check their overall alignment, check to see if they have any varus uh, of their heels, see if they have like any capable varus foot. Um, and then, you, you know, you do your normal kind of palpation. You talked about palpating the, the ATFL, the perennial tendons, maybe the CFL, and then doing kind of these special tests where you do your uh, anterior drawer where it's at, at dorsiflexion, kind of right at neutral. And when you do your internal, you're testing the superior band of the ATFL. And then when you're doing your external rotation and anterior drawer, you're testing the inferior band. And you're also doing this tailored tilt where you're kind of um, inverting the talus and seeing, you know, if you get some gas, but also one of the things you mentioned there is checking the other side and comparing it to the contralateral side. Um, Correct. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. I guess the, the, the two other aspects I would talk about is, you know, one, obviously you need to also, as, as you were recapping, you need to look at the neurologic and muscular status yeah. overall, right? Because there are patients who could have a perineal nerve injury or could have a Charcot-Marie tooth or something, you know, some sort of neurologic condition that could be leading to perineal tendon weakness or muscular weakness that could be associated with you know, in a feeling of instability. So you want to make sure you're examining their motor strength, obviously on, on both sides and their general neurologic type status. Uh, and then the one aspect that we don't pay enough attention to uh, that I think is important as 
as we go forward. And there's been a lot of work in the NBA that's been done over the last 10 years is looking at core strength. So glute, glute strength has, I think, plays a big role in instability symptoms, not laxity, but instability symptoms. And that's really been borne out by a lot of work by the NBA. And, and of course, Steph Curry, the, the, the Steph Curry's situation uh, really came down to, I think, a lot of core strengthening um, when they started looking. And, and he was kind of the uh, eureka moment, I think, for the NBA. Mm-hmm. They started looking at lower extremity injuries in younger players and found that when they actually improved core strength and specifically glute strength um, and endurance, their their lower extremity injury rate went down. And I think oh. that, is, that that it's there's there's actually some more research that's been done over the last five to 10 years in that. And, and I think it's uh, it's something that we neglect a little bit because we're foot and ankle people and we're kind of from the knee down. Right. Uh, but I, I've over the last two or three years, I've included core strengthening and glute strengthening in all my PT uh, prescriptions for patients with uh, with instability. Ah, OK, that's a good little tidbit there. And and so moving forth, what imaging are you getting? Are you getting just x-rays? Are you getting MRIs on everybody? Like what's your what's your algorithm? Right. So x-rays, I get x-rays on everybody. Again, looking for bony abnormalities, uh, looking for, you know, al- alignment issues, things of that nature, uh, avulsion injuries off of the fibula. So you can find, you know, uh, uh, associated pathologies that go along. Do you have a calcified ligament? Those sorts of things. Um, then, of course, you've got these provocation tests, uh, and I don't do these as much as I used to. So yeah. stress tests, um, uh, anterior drawer, uh, tilt tests, you can do those with either manually or you can do them with a, uh, a machine kind of that's set up to do them. Um, I find that, you know, there's, they can be helpful, but at the same time, I rely on my exam more than, than stress radiographs to, to assess instability. Just because again, sometimes it's kind of a combination ankle subtalar joint. Sometimes it's mm. more subtalar joint. Subtalar joint instability is not as easily seen on plain X-ray or, or provocation tests. Um, so, uh, so it's a, it's a feel thing. Um, but certainly, they can be helpful to demonstrate uh, uh, gross instability, like this person here that obviously has a significantly positive anterior drawer test on uh, on stress radiograph. And then I will uh, get MRI scan almost routinely in these patients, uh, looking for a combination of osteochondral, so so intra what I call intraarticular damage, right? So an osteochondral lesion, uh, any any intraarticular damage to the tibia or the the talus. Um, Number two, looking for perineal tendon tears, obvious perineal tendon tears. Sometimes they don't show up on MRI, but typically a pretty large tear you can see on an MRI scan. So perineal tendons are are important to me. The ligament tears, it depends on the, the injury I, if I'm if I have an MRI scan in the acute phase, which I don't do very often, I, I might do for like a high performance athlete or somebody I'm really, you know, I need to get back right away and I need to identify their injury or, but but for the chronic patient, the problem is that almost 99% of the you know patients who have had an ankle sprain, when you get an MRI scan, it's going to come back and say that they have a tear that they've got some sort of abnormality or tear in their ligament. Yeah, their ATFL or their CFL. And, and so there's so many, what I would call false positives um, that, or, or just tests that don't necessarily 
result in a diagnosis, right? The, the, the MRI says it's almost like back issues where, you know, you've got 30 to 40% of people have a quote herniated disc or a bulging right. disc. Um, and so with that, I, I rely on, again, my exam and their history to identify the ligament insufficiency issues. And then I use the MRI to look for osteochondral or intraarticular injury, as well as perineal tendon uh, injuries more so than I do to look at their, uh, at their ATFL or CFL. Synovitis and inflammation can show up definitely uh, more often in the acute phase than the chronic phase, or they may have a little pocket of fluid in that anterior lateral corner of their, um, of their sinus tarsi or their anterior lateral ankle joint. But that can come and go depending on how active. It depends sometimes, you know, what time of the day was the MRI done? Was it done at 7.30 in the morning when they had just gotten up? Or was it done at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when they were on, on their feet mm. all day at work? Right. True. So that can vary depending on what their activity status is that particular day. Um, but I, I think it is helpful. And I, I get it in all those patients uh, uh, to look for that. CTs rarely. Uh, for ankle instability, except that patient where I'm looking for uh, a tarsal coalition, because tarsal coalition is one of those patients where they complain of an ankle sprain uh, or a feeling of instability, because what's happening is they have no motion through their subtalar joint. So they're, they're feeling like their ankle's giving way or their ankle has to give way for that, that motion to occur. So I'll find suspicious. And typically that's going to be more that teenager, um, young adult, uh, their, their ankle x-ray looks good, but they've got some findings on x-ray that look like they might have a tarsal collision or they have no motion of their subtalar joint on exam. And you're like, oh, you know, that's a concern for that particular scenario. So I'm looking for a tarsal coalition in that particular case. And I find you can see them on MRI, but I find that CT scan, I, in my opinion, is a better way to diagnose a coalition. Uh, you know, ultrasound, I think ultrasound can be helpful. I'm not good at ultrasound. I'm not an ultrasonographer. If you have access to somebody who is really good at ultrasound, then I think it can be a fantastic modality. I think in Europe, it's much more uh, popular than it is in the U.S. Uh, and, but, but with uh, the advent of primary care sports medicine people, uh, who are doing more ultrasounds, I think it can be helpful to identify, again, ligament tears, maybe, maybe not, because of the, the fact that anybody with chronic instability is probably going to have an, 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 a non-anatomic or some sort of an unusual ligament on, on MRI or, or on an ultrasound. But I do think you could potentially identify some lesser instability patterns, uh, as well as uh, perineal tendons. They're excellent. The, the the ultrasound is excellent for perineal tendon pathology. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was uh, that was good about that tidbit about the the coalition. I wasn't even thinking about that, um, but that's also some of the thing. One of the things I've at least seen test questions on that they'll ask us about. Um, and and so you know, we went through imaging. You know, what I guess what is your non-op treatment for the if you you know see so you see one of these patients that haven't tried anything and they just have this. What is your protocol for non-op treatment? And afterwards, we can kind of talk a little bit about operative treatment. Sure. So I think it's a combination of, of uh, these lower extremity sort of focused issues, right? So as you said, kind of perineal strengthening. Um, I think always looking at the gastroc, the gastroc soleus complex is important. Uh, a lot of people have a gastrocnemius contracture and that can lead to a, when you have a tight heel cord, that can lead to a, uh, 
a feeling of instability when you get into that neutral to dorsiflex position because the Achilles is trying to move. As it gets tighter, it wants to move, especially if the patient has a varus, a little bit of a varus heel. Um, it wants to move it that direction. Um, focusing on uh, those, the uh, proprioceptive aspects as uh, is on this slide, balance training, uh, awareness, uh, much like there's been a lot of work done on the ACL side with, you know, how do you, how do you jump, right? How do you land after you jump and, and what we call kind of prophylactic therapy for, uh, especially, uh, um, uh, high school female athletes, um, in terms of trying to reduce the rate of ACL tears. So, you know, teaching people how to land, how to come down, how to, um, you know, feel where they are in space is very important reaction time kind of work, which, you know, whether it be BAPS board, whether it be um, uh, tilt, tilt tables and things of that nature. And then, of course, these kind of orthotics in, you know, a, a lateral heel wedge can be helpful if they have a flexible hind foot, right? If they don't have a flexible hind foot or if they have a rigidly plantar flex first ray. So you always want to kind of think about as you're you know, those are patients, again, anatomically you have to look for like the Coleman block test, which is most commonly associated with a uh, uh, cava varus or a, a Charcot-Marie tooth foot. You want to make sure that that first ray is, is uh, mobile enough because if you have a really rigid first ray and you put a, a lateral heel wedge in that person, they're going to hate you because they're going to have a lot <laughs> of pressure underneath their first, uh, their sesamoid complex. And, and oftentimes they just abandon it right? They just abandon it. And then I use bracing a lot for uh, prophylactically for my athletes and my, yeah. I, I, I think it works well for games and practices. And there's, I think more and more athletes that are going to using uh, the braces now that they're much more functional than they were. Again, when I was growing up as a kid, they were very bulky. Now yeah. they're much less bulky. And I see a lot of athletes, much like linemen in the NFL, wear braces on their knees to try to prevent them from getting an MCL. I think there's more and more basketball and volleyball players who are wearing braces uh, when they play just because the incidence of stepping on someone's foot uh, as you're coming down from a rebound or coming down from a spike, it just it happens, right? Yep. It's not going to not happen. And so if you've got a brace on when it happens, then it just protects you from that massive injury, right? You may still tweak it, but it, it usually gives you some pretty good protection against, you know, taking it out completely. So I think it's as the bracing gets better uh, and as it continues to evolve, we'll continue to see that be a, a, from a prophylactic standpoint. And, and then just, finally that part I asked about, or the part about core strengthening, yeah. right? Which, which I think is very, very important and, and not really emphasized enough. Yeah, and, and do you just use a, a is it just a lace up ankle brace? To, Correct. Like, I use like those, yeah, but I think it I think you have to get one of the better ones, right? Not just the one you can buy at the local store. Um, you can most people can buy them online now, but they really are like a figure of eight. They're a lace up with mm. a figure of eight style, and um, and I, so I think and the I think it's critical also that the the origin of the figure of eight straps really need to be behind the axis of the ankle. Mm. So there are some people will have these kind of generic braces that they purchased at, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods, or I don't want to say anything negative, but you know, <laughs> it's not right. that it's just, they kind of just, but, but if the, if the, the lace up 
uh, or the, um, the Velcro strap originates in front of the axis of the ankle, then even when you strap it around, you really don't get the, the vector support. You really don't get the force support that you need. It really needs to originate behind the mid axis of the ankle, which allows it to then come over top of and in front of the ankle, both medial and lateral. If you start in front of it, then you, you just don't have the mechanical advantage of that strap. It just doesn't work as well. Yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of non-operative treatment. So right. moving forward to operative treatment, I guess, what are your number one indications to operate? And then two, I guess, kind of what goes into your pre-operative planning? And then we can we can touch base on some of the different techniques. Sure. So, you know, without a doubt, you know, patients who have gotten to a point where it's functionally limiting their activities. They have ankle instability that's that's limiting their either recreational or daily activities, right? It's bothering them enough on a routine basis that they can't do what they want to do or need to do. Uh, sometimes they have pain, sometimes they don't. Uh, and they've come in with this you know, history, your, exam, your examination is consistent with their history. And, uh, and so you, you know, they get to a point where they're like, doc, I just can't live with this, right? And I think it's a shared decision-making model. Uh, it's always a process where you have to talk with the patient and find out exactly what are their needs. And you have to make sure that, that those needs are realistic, right? If I get somebody right. and they, they say, well, you know, it, it, I get an ankle sprain after I run 26 miles. Well, okay, <laughs> right. You know, or that, but, but, um, but, you know, it's basically those sorts of things. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of, I'm, I'm in private practice as we talked about, and it's kind of like common sense approach, right? You know, uh, a patient comes in, they have a lot of instability, they've failed non-operative treatment. Well, at that point in time, you know, if they don't want to wear a brace on a routine basis, well, then you can tighten up the ligaments and, and, and make them better. Um, yeah. So, um, so preoperative planning wise, again, I think, Looking at the foot, you know, you've got to identify if there need to be any concomitant uh, procedures, as you've indicated, you know, calcaneal osteotomy, a first ray osteotomy. Do they have perineal tendon pathology? Uh, you know, does that need to be addressed at the same time? So when you talk about, uh, um, you know, those are, the, are, are kind of the, the, uh, the things you need to be aware of outside of the ligaments themselves, right? And, and they should be part of your routine preoperative planning process. Um, once you get beyond that, then you start talking about the, the, the instability component itself, which is the ligamentous insufficiency. And in that particular case, uh, you know, you really, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, a little bit about where is the instability? Is it more anterior? Is it more anterior drawer? Is it, is it more, you know, kind of uh, varus valgus? Is it the combination of both? on my exam, what does it feel like? And, um, and then it starts to be intraoperative findings as well. When you get in there, if you find something different than what you expect, as, as I like to say to my patients, I try not to be surprised in the operating room, right? I, I try to kind of know before I go in what I'd like to do. Um, and then of course, there, some of their history plays a role in it in terms of, have they had previous surgery? Do they have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or some sort of genetic hyperligamentous laxity type process, because that plays a role in my, in my decision-making about how to do the surgery. Um, are they, you know, a, a, a 350 pound lineman 
or a 110 pound ballet dancer, right? You know, uh, that, that plays a role as well as what are they doing, right? Are they a weekend warrior who just needs to have their ankles stable so that they can go play with their, uh, uh child on the weekend? Or is this a, you know, elite athlete, uh, that is trying to get back on the field for college or professional purposes, right? And so, Again, those are those are historical elements that play a role in decision making uh, and preoperative planning as far as uh, what type of procedure am I going to do? Am I going to augment that procedure at all with uh, with uh, synthetic or non-synthetic uh, augmentation devices? Um, and and exactly, you know, am I going to do it arthroscopically or open? Uh, you know, those are the type of things that go into that decision making process. Yeah, so it's kind of, you know, like looking at the patient as a whole, putting in all, you know, all their kind of different factors or history, their activity levels, what their alignment is like, what you're finding on your physical exam findings and kind of just basically having a good plan going into the operating room and having a good, I guess, sequence of, of, of steps to, you know, to how you can undergo the procedure and, and have the outcome that you want. And Correct. so say, for example, you know, we, we got a patient, we're going to take them to the OR, um, I know there are multiple, multiple, multiple procedures that can be done yeah. for lateral, uh, for lateral ligament, it's for lateral ankle instability. Right. But I guess, as some slide, maybe you could take us through some of the, I guess, bigger, maybe some of the historical stuff, and then we could talk about, um, uh, you know, some of the more up to date treatment options for you know lateral ankle instability. Sure, I think I think the best way to think about these are are kind of anatomical and non-anatomical kind of methods, right? You know, so, and, and so the, the more traditional, and we'll talk, these are the non-anatomical, we'll talk about kind of more of the anatomical ones in a second, but these, these are kind of historically the quote, non-anatomic kind of ways to, to treat this pathology. Uh, and, you know, this was the, 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 these three are kind of the mainstays of what was done in the sixties uh, and seventies, uh, and even into the eighties where, where um, you you would basically rob Peter to pay Paul and essentially right. take part of the perineal tendons, reroute the perineal tendons to basically try to reconstruct some restraint system on the lateral side. So this would be similar to, if you will, the Joe Namath procedure of the ACLs in the 1970s, right, where they took extra articular um, muscular tissues and they, they, they strapped it over top of the outside of the knee in order to try to recreate some sort of, uh, of uh, extra articular restraint for, for the problem. And so these are all, as you can see, the, the, if you will, the, the ATFL, CFL, uh, sketches, and you can see none of these procedures really realign, really align with those ligamentous, you know, uh, directions, if you will. Right. But they all work very well. One of the biggest issues that, that they occur is that when you take these non-anatomic procedures and you do them, is it oftentimes over constrains the the joint and so many of these procedures ended up having patients get subtalar arthritic changes because it so over constrained the joint that the the subtalar joint became arthritic much like the old shoulder procedures that were done in the 60s and 70s the putty plat and some other procedures that were excellent procedures at restraining you know the shoulder coming out anteriorly where they took the subscap and moved it over and things like that but a lot of those patients ended up getting arthritic changes develop over the next 20 years or so, 20, 30 years, because 
it, it over-constrained the joint. It didn't allow for normal motion through that area and ultimately resulted in, in those arthritic changes. But they were, they were what people had at the time. Remember, we didn't have, at, at this point in time, back in the, the 60s and 70s and 50s when these were developed, there were no bone anchors. Uh, right. There were no uh, suture anchors. There were no interference uh, roots and things of that nature. So these were all procedures that were done with the best technology that they had at the time, and, and they worked. They did what they needed to do for the patient at that particular moment. Um, so there's nothing to say badly about them other than they're, they are more historical at this point. Very rarely do we do these types of procedures in in the modern era yeah and and so again these non-anatomic these are things like the evans the watson's watson jones the crispin snooks and then now when you talk about more uh anatomic are you talking more kind of the brostrum and then can you kind of talk a little bit more about what these different procedures are Right. So there's a combination of both. So you've got the brostrum and then the and then the brostrum gould, if you will, right? The brostrum gould officially would be non-anatomic, right? Because okay. it takes the inferior retinaculum and it brings it up. But it is it is more anatomic, if you will, than than the Evans and the Christian Snook and the Watson type procedures. You know, usually when we do these, the kind of the modification of these procedures in an anatomic way now. If we move beyond the brostrum and the brostrum gould, we would do basically a ligament allograft, right? Where you would basically use use interference screws and place an allograft basically through the fibula or attached to the fibula to recreate the ATFL and CFL in a in a more anatomic fashion, right? Uh, than than what we than what we did back then. But the mainstay in lateral ankle instability, without a doubt, is the brostrum gould or brostrum type procedure where you're essentially taking that sling of tissue. And again, we, the, this left side diagram kind of looks like it's two different ligaments, but what we know is that those, that inferior ATFL kind of connects with a, a fascial tissue and, and sling around the CFL. And so by taking that, that sling of tissue and essentially bringing it up, and in many cases, adding the inferior extensor retinaculum to that, uh, you essentially can buttress and reinforce the, the soft tissues and imbricate the soft tissues in the area that both control the anterior drawer component as well as the you know, uh, tailor tilt component and rotational component of the, um, of the uh, subtalar joint as well as the ankle because the inferior retinaculum actually attaches, as you can see here on this diagram, attaches to the calcaneus um, and it attaches to the, to the tubercle in that area. So it, it, it acts as a, as a protection. But, but, but I think what we're seeing is that understanding that this sling of tissue that's there, you can actually take that sling of tissue and bring it up and reinforce that uh, even even on its own, imbricate it on its own. And in many cases, especially arthroscopically, that, that's been shown to be done quite effectively and can, um, and can be uh, effective without having to bring the retinaculum up. So a lot of it's just imbricating. Are, you, are we putting anchors in anything? Correct. Yeah, you're putting the anchors in. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so you're definitely putting anchors in the ATFL origin point in most cases. Most of these that you're clearing off that inferior anterior aspect of the uh, fibula, and you're putting in uh, usually one or two. Maybe a some people will use a double loaded single anchor. Other people use two anchors. 
um, in that area and then passing the sutures through that material, uh, through the, the soft tissues in that area to essentially kind of grab that cuff of tissue. I show people all the time, I take my shirt sleeve, I don't know if people can see me, take that shirt sleeve and just kind of tuck it up, right? You're basically tucking it up like this right. and then you're know, bringing that whole thing and, and taking that whole sling of tissue, bringing it up and then letting the body remodel it once it's tightened up. Um, uh, and, and the, and the body will remodel that a little bit. I always over tighten it a little bit because it, it, it will loosen just a tiny bit as time goes on. And, and what role does arthroscopy have? Are you scoping, you know, all of these just to see inside the joint to see if there's any chondral injuries or are you, you know, that superior, uh, ATFL you, you mentioned, you could see inside of the joint. Are you doing anything with that or what do you do with the scope? Yeah, so definitely, you know, arthroscopy is, I think, becoming standard uh, with ankle, with lateral ankle uh, ligament reconstruction at this point in time. No different than shoulder arthroscopy and knee arthroscopy. Back when I was a resident, you know, it was the same, it was kind of the same pathway. Uh, we started with open procedures. Then what we did was we put the scope in and then we took the scope out and then we did the open procedure, right? And then right. We, yeah. as we learned how to do it through the scope, we started to do mini open repairs and then eventually open repairs. But I think it, it A, you're looking for intraarticular pathology that's not detectable uh, on the MRI. So obviously, if you have a big OCD, you're going to stick the scope in there and do scope work already. Um, but but I, what I'm looking for is medial pathology. Uh, a lot of these patients have tenderness on the anteromedial aspect and and unless you want to do a huge incision and put an army Navy in there and pull the, the entire capsule up, it's tough to see that medial side through the lateral incision. And so uh, this allows you to really see that medial side. There's plenty of times where there's some chondral damage. It's not an OCD, but there's clearly chondral damage in that area. Um, and so, uh, so it allows you to kind of clean out. And then the, the synovitis, like you said, uh, you know, you can clean out synovitis quite effectively with the scope that, especially on that medial side and anterior aspect that you just can't see. Um, and then the final aspect is the, is the osteophytes. So there's a good number of patients, especially in dorsal and dorsal medial talus, uh, where if they have discomfort, um, the instability, what we're seeing is that patients who have instability oftentimes are the ones who have uh, uh, osteophytes. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, part of the pathology of the, of the disease. And so uh, those patients could potentially have persistent pain. We know from this, we know from the data about five to 10% of patients with open brostrums continue to have problems after surgery uh, with persistent pain issues um, and, and instability issues. So the question is, why is that, right? And so by looking in the joint, you can, I think, identify some intraarticular pathology that leads to those poor results or those less, less ideal results. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, just another quick one or two questions here before we wrap up. Is there any time where, you know, you're doing this, you may do your, uh, your brostrum or your ghoul modification of the, of the brostrum after you scope it, and, you know, you put your anchor in, everything looks good. It looks tight laterally. And then you do you do a tailored tilt test afterwards? And what happens if you see a lot of medial gap and you go back and, and try to do a, some type of deltoid reconstruction? Do you just splint? What do you do in that in that case or that scenario? Yeah. So again, yeah, and, and I've been that you know, I've kind of pioneered that lateral ankle ligament reconstruction through the scope. So so nowadays we uh, you know it's actually more popular internationally than it is in the US, but there's a lot of people who are doing the Brostrom Gould through the arthroscopy, right? Okay. Just, you know, so just like uh, we're doing shoulder 
ligament reconstruction to the scope, we can do, you can do the lateral ligament reconstruction through the scope, or if you've got an isolated ATFL superior band tear, you can grab that tissue and, and imbricate it and bring it up to an anchor in the front face of the fibula and actually repair it or reconstruct it in that manner. And you don't have to make a large incision on the outside uh, of the ankle or even a, you know, even a small incision on that area. So yeah. I think it's important to know that. I think that's where, where ultimately, you know, we'll end up is, is we do that. And, and what that does allow me to do is examine, right. Is there instability on other areas? Right. Uh, and so if I see that there's some pathology on the medial side, I will do, you can actually do a imprecation on the medial side as well through the scope. That's how we also describe that in the literature, or if I need to open it on the medial side, but but I do think there is uh, more awareness now of patients with what we call global instability, yeah. where they've got both medial and lateral instability. So uh, we're picking those up a little bit more intraoperatively when they're when they're relaxed and they're asleep. And so if we do run into that, then yes, I, I won't hesitate to tighten up their their medial side at the same time. And you know, say you've done this procedure all arthroscopic. Uh, you know, you've reconstructed ligaments. What's your, you know, quickly? What's your, what's your post-op protocol? Is it just do you have them non-weight bearing for a period of time, or do you have them put a little bit of weight on it? When do they start PT? Very short. Usually a week. I keep them kind of touchdown weight bearing in a splint. I'll tell them that they can, you know, put weight on it to transfer. But I really want to keep them. On. And that's mainly just to kind of, you know, prevent them from doing anything, kind of. Uh, to harm themselves, if you will. But it, usually if it's done, if I can do it arthroscopically, then I try to get them moving as quickly as I can in terms of weight bearing, not necessarily okay. obviously varus valgus. So I try at my first visit to get them 50% weight bearing. And then by three weeks, they're usually full weight bearing in a brace. Um, I know in uh, one of my colleagues in Japan, he lets them weight bear right away in a brace. He mm. puts them in a brace and goes. So uh, we know that that Weight bearing is good. We know that controlled motion is good. You get better ligament healing if you get controlled motion. And and uh, and I think we're behind the times on foot and ankle with putting people, when we put people in boots for six weeks and keep them non-weight bearing, I don't, I don't think we're doing them any favors when it comes to their ligament healing. Uh, we would never do that for an ACL or an MCL, or, you know, we, we would, we would keep them, you know, we would, we would brace them and then we would let them, you know, weight bear and do you know, controlled motion. Um, and so I think, uh, we're definitely moving in that direction toward, uh, a, a, uh, you know, a, a protected motion type aspect. And that's what I try to do with those patients. Well, uh, Dr. Mango, it's been, you know, I learned a lot just from talking to you and definitely about <laughs> lateral ankle instability and some anatomy stuff. I didn't know. Um, I really appreciate you for coming on the podcast. Anything, else that you want our listeners to know about, you know, lateral ankle instability that we may have, that we may have missed per se, or I know we, we touched on a lot of different things, but any, any, any last words? I would just say that lateral ankle instability and ankle instability in general is a, is a uh, wide open field with a lot of opportunity for anybody who's interested in uh, an area of uh, orthopedics where they can help define the future that's going to be the place to be. And so I think you're going to see a lot of developments over the next 10, 15, 20 years in terms of our understanding of instability, better treatments than we currently have. And so I'd encourage any of you, any residents out there or fellows, obviously, if you're a fellowship, you're probably already interested in foot and ankle, but any, uh, 
any uh, residents out there who are looking for an exciting field where you know you can take care of great patients and really make a difference in our understanding of the pathology uh, and change the future, this is this is a place to be because it's an exciting, new, innovative area. That's awesome. And how can the people listening follow you if they want to follow you on your social media? If you want to, if you want to put it out there, you can. <laughs> they can follow I'm on you. Twi- and- well, I'm on Twitter at, at pmangonemd. Um, I don't do a lot on Instagram. I do have an Instagram account. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I can't even, I honestly don't even remember what it's, uh, what it's, uh, the, the Instagram is, but it's, uh, it's there, but basically, uh, I've got my website, uh, at my practice, but probably social media wise, it's uh, at P Mangone MD. Um, and, uh, I try to be involved in that a little, you know, some I'm, I'm, I'm on there moderately frequently. I'm learning as well as uh, helping other people learn. Uh, at the same time. And uh, if anybody wants to contact me individually, I'm happy to uh, to help them with, uh, if they're interested in foot and ankle, or my, at even just my email, uh, which is uh, uh, peter.mangone at emergeortho.com. So uh, if you have an interest in foot and ankle and are looking for information, um, I may not be able to answer all your questions, but I can try to get to the right people. The Foot and Ankle Society is pretty uh cohesive and uh, talk to each other and know each other well. So if somebody's interested in more knowledge, we can point them in the right direction. Well, uh, again, Dr. Mango, it's been a pleasure having you on. For those that are listening, hope you enjoyed and uh, stay tuned until the next time. Thank you all for listening to that episode. We hope that you all enjoyed it. Uh, we talked a lot about lateral ankle instability. Dr. Mangone really broke it down very well. So uh, without further ado, if you have not already hit the subscribe button, um, check out our YouTube page at Nailed It Ortho. And please leave us a rating or review. Let us know how much you enjoyed this episode. And until next time.